0: It's early summer parable season, and this morning we meet a sower who is 60s, hippie, crazy, generous, with a number of seed that he scatters. She throws it not only on good soil, yet on soil that resembles North Carolina, cracked asphalt, sprouting weeds, serving as burial grounds for cigarettes and beer cans, and frankly, resembles one of the concert parking lots near the boardwalk after a huge gathering. I know because I walked in the What are the chances seed will take root in that? Well, Jesus tells us the chances are endless. When we get to Jesus' interpretation, the generous wastefulness of the sower and the amazing abundance of seed isn't even mentioned. Instead, the focus shifts entirely to the soil, drawing an analogy between the different qualities of soil and different kinds of persons. Perhaps this sower was important, important to early evangelists, supplying, applying this parable to their own situation, with believers struggling to hang on to their faith. Or perhaps... This parable was and is a proclamation of unending grace, whereas the interpretation was encouragement to persevere. And I wonder, might we recognize we too need encouragement from time to time? Let my heart be good soil is a relevant prayer. If there wasn't a sower who sowed generously, abundantly even wastefully it really wouldn't matter what kind of soil our hearts are and this is what strikes me this week we live at a time and place where we often feel like there's just never enough not enough money clean air fresh water fuel security happiness prestige or or sometimes this feeling comes from the ads we watch on television and the internet ads that strive to create in us a sense of lack and inadequacy that the product being advertised can fill other times this feeling comes from politicians who, whether hailing from the left or the right or the middle follow a similar strategy by naming what is wrong what is lacking what or who we should fear, and then offering themselves as the solution to problems. While this strategy is effective for both advertisers and politicians, it has the effect of creating in us a profound sense of scarcity and inadequacy, eventually making us believe not only that we do not have enough, but ultimately are not enough. Hitting us against one another, tribes of survival of the fittest. This story of the sower, and by extension, God, who scatters seed on all kinds of soil, means so much to me and might mean a lot to you. God does not hold back. God is not worried about whether there will be enough seed or grace or love. And God may want our hearts to be good soil, but nevertheless hurls a ridiculous number of seeds, even on dry, thorny, or beaten soil. And you may get the feeling that God would probably scatter seed, love, mercy, and grace on a parking lot. And why? Because there's enough. And ultimately, because God believes we are enough. Enough to save ourselves? No. Not even. (laughs) Not enough to deserve love, dignity, and respect? Absolutely. God loves us just as we are and regards us worthy of being showered with grace. Loving us as we are is not, of course, the same as being content with where we are In fact, precisely because God loves us, God wants us to discover the abundant life of trust in God and love of and service to our neighbor. Precisely because God loves us. God wants us to stand against the fear and scarcity that drives prejudice, racism, greed, and violence. Precisely because God loves us. God wants us to strive for the equality and dignity of all people. And precisely because God loves us, God wants us to share what we have generously so all will have enough food and shelter. And precisely because God loves us, God wants us to grow into the people God knows we can be. Yet the fundamental and unifying element in God's hopes for us is that they spring from God's unconditional, reckless love for an acceptance of us right here, right now, just as we are. There is enough, and you are enough, and God will never give up on you, and God's grace is unending, and I promise, and I know, Because God did not give up on me. I have been the recipient of God's mercy, undeserving, unrepentant. I have heard God unconditionally saying, Don't just do something, stand there and let me give you something beyond anything you are capable of doing for yourself. Upon completing my MD, I accepted a position as chaplain to chronically and terminally ill children. The next year of my life was spent holding dying infants and children and their families who lived in the pediatric intensive care unit at Memorial Hospital in Chapel Hill. Child after child, Death after death, long night and tortured parent, one after another, it took its toll. About six months into this ministry, my father, who had been diagnosed with terminal lung cancer, was given his final death sentence. Two weeks later, my golden retriever died, constant companion of 15 years. The same week, my apartment flooded then two days later, caught on fire. I'm not making this up. And the week after that, the Bishop of North Carolina turned me down to pursue ordination to the priesthood. Wearied and heavily laden with the rawest and most personal pain I had known at that time, ended my tenure as chaplain. And I accepted a job in Dallas, Texas a decision born of desperate despair rather than the integrity of discernment. Within months of moving, my dad died. Within months of his death, I found myself without a job, not even knowing where I would live. And then, one tear-filled evening of packing, the phone rang. A friend was calling to offer me her family cottage, on an island called Matlaché, southwest coast of Florida. Her name, I kid you not, is Grace. I moved to Grace's island, and for the next six months, let the sun and the water and my cats and my friends and the quiet voice of God bring me back from an involuntary incarceration in the dark. I recall the moment when I knew life was slipping away from me, the very will to live, losing the battle with a wariness beyond bearing. And I was lying on the couch, semi awake, not remembering the last time I had eaten or bathed or spoken. I was broken, beaten, and convinced of my own helplessness and hopelessness. One cat was lying on my tummy, paws on my chest. Other cat was wrapped around my head, licking. My cheek. And I knew at that moment I had to decide life or death. And so I got up and I walked outside and I took a deep breath and said, God, please help me. I took several hesitant steps towards the backyard, sat on the pier. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw my neighbor. He was picking fresh grapefruit, placing them in a basket. He walked towards me as if approaching a beaten stray dog. He extended the basket towards me, and tenderly he said, I'm not seeing you out here in a while. Here's some fresh fruit. And I caught some shrimp this morning. We would sure like you to have it. At that precise moment, it seemed as if time stopped, revealing a brightness from the heavens that split the atom of of earthly reality. And I heard God say the most extravagant, unexpected words, see how I love him, see how I love you. And in what appeared as mist on the horizon, was a vision of God, of Jesus, with arms outstretched and a voice continuing to whisper, See, all souls are mine. It was at this time, this precise, profound tear into the fabric of reality, that I knew I was connected to this old man of Matlaché, this man who was the caretaker of his wife with Alzheimer's and her sister, disabled with arthritis. And this man whose mercy extended outstretched arms of the fruit of literal life and welcomed me to join the humanity of God. And I loved him. And I loved every person I saw on the street later in that day. And I loved every living thing in Malaché. And I was connected to them all, a part of them and they, an inextricable part of me. I knew that Christ had spoken to me there. That in the simplest gesture of human hospitality, the whole wealth of eternity had been given to me and that abundant life was again mine, returned to me through this man of Matlashay, God's child. About a year later, during my time at Virginia Seminary, earning another degree in Christian education, I had a similar experience of God: God's passionate love. The right Reverend Tim Shaw, Tom Shaw, Bishop of Massachusetts, retired, had led our community in a Lenten quiet day of retreat, and after one of his meditations, I had sat in silence out on the part of the campus we called the hill. It's a place, coincidentally, where I used to go slave riding as a young girl, a neighborhood of familiar comfort. I stood up, was walking back to my dorm, struck by the view of seminarians leaning into trees, spread out over blankets on the acres of lawn, professors doing the same. And it seemed that in mid-stride, I heard God again say the very same thing, See how I love them. See how I love you. Now you, go, love them. Once again, I was filled with a possibility of love beyond bearing. I love them, all of them. I glanced over at Seminary Road. And with the strain, I watched the people driving with the strain and their faces grimacing with the daily pressures of life and traffic. And I just love them all so much, I almost wanted to jump out into the road and tell them. I wanted to make myself as tall as an old oak tree that we find here in the city and on campus. And I wanted long branches so that I could just wrap myself around everything. I wanted to do all that I could take care of them and this work and soothe every brow, kiss away every fear, and let every person know just how much God loves you. I wish I could say that this stays with me all the time, and it doesn't. I do have times of this mostly and usually when I preside at the Eucharist or listen to a confession, or sit at the bedside of a dying child, or play with a lonely one, or even more, their lonelier parent. Those times in which I am solidly centered in sacramental care for another. I do know that when I dare to give, I experience this God love. When I share freely, I know that love. And I also know that when I hold on too tightly to my money or my home or my food or care for another, when I commit any action or inaction of spiritual hoarding, I experience separation from God's global economy, God's way of extravagant mercy that interconnects me with you and all of creation. What I have learned sometimes the hard way is that it's not all about me. I've come to see that as long as one person hurts, feels despair, or is treated with disrespect, I too am hurt and feel despair and know what it is to be treated with disrespect. For you and I are brother and sister. We are the body of Christ. Christ existing as community, as Bonhoeffer loves to say, or loved to say. We are connected to all other living things, and we take rest and respite in one another, in the Christ that's a part of all of us, and through each other we know what it is to be given rest that exceeds our weariness, to be relieved of burdens that we alone will never be adequately to bear alone. I've learned that we, sisters and brothers in Christ, are God's extravagant gift to one another, bearing mercy and grace and love with the extravagance of the one who made us and desires us to be reconciled with one another. And I've learned that God's extravagant mercy is both shared with me and with all of God's people in each moment we respond as God does to us with love independent of deserving, offering to bear with one another the burdens of living and the extravagant gift of life itself. This is what it is to know God. This is why we are here. And as just a visitor, please know I have experienced this within this space within some meetings I've attended, and with those with whom I've come to know. God bless you. God bless your ministry. God bless you as you go forth from this space, opening your arms to those who may need your extravagant.